Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker practicing in the greater Toronto area. I'm an investor myself. And I'm joined here by my dear friend and co-host, Nick Hill. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me today, Dan. So kind of you. My pleasure. I am a uh, mortgage agent, real estate investor, and I guess I have to start calling myself a podcast co-host at this point. Are you telling people that you're a podcast? Are you podcast guy now? Are we podcast guys? You know what? Like I actually kind of felt like it was like a CrossFit kind of thing when I, (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean? Like one of those things. I know. I, but and it was like, I, look, I'm a realtor, so like I'm used to being embarrassed to introduce myself. But I'm not actually embarrassed. I just have to like disqualify by being like, I'm not a podcast host of like a, one of those podcasts, you know? Like it's a real one. So it's like, how do you know if someone's a vegan? They'll tell you immediately that yeah. they are. So like we fall into that category now. Pod? Yeah. Great. Well, that's, I, that's yeah. Great. I just I didn't know if it was like a point of pride, right? But then I realized it is. I just have to like people are always interested. They're like, what podcast? And I'm like, this one. Just go look at like like the top whatever. Check yeah. it out. You'll see my face there. I've had a bunch of my friends, my loving supporting friends, recently send me all these clips where. It's some person on Instagram and Twitter, and they're like, not every idiot needs a podcast. Like, how many podcasts are out there? And I'm like, well. Yeah, it's just a bunch of on. dudes just loving the sounds of their own voice, right? Our industry. That's not us, though. Hey, you know what? It was, I think. <laughs> it was before this, before we met our podfathers. But I think our industry is just like, it's one of those things where it's going to become that way. Anyway, before we digress too far, I think we already have. I want to give a shout out to, I think you want to give a shout out to the co-op that we just got, but also I wanted to reference that episode. I can't remember what the episode number was, but the six people, people were asking us how we met other investors. I think it was episode 20. I don't know. 20. Yeah. Yep. I used to run these investment groups before COVID happened. I would basically every month have like a different meetup in the area where I sell real estate and it would be myself a mortgage broker and you know some other person in the real estate space and we would just talk about deals. And some days it would be like two people, some days it would be like 50 people and we would just get together and just shoot the shit talking about investing in real estate in our area. And so I was talking to a couple of people who called in about the show about this and they were like, "Well, I would love to do that in our area. Like, could you help me do that?" And I was like, "Ah." And being the person that I am, I was like, "Yeah, yeah, like totally going to help you do that. Like, I'll even co-host them with you." And so I think I volunteered myself to like fly out to a couple of different Canadian cities to do these things. And there we go. Yeah, and we're starting them on like meetup.com, so which is where I did it originally. So we're trying to create the infrastructure for people to do this, to meet other investors, because that's been the most valuable thing for me in my real estate investing career. And the other piece is we're also going to have a Facebook group, really early stages on this stuff, but we're just trying to put in infrastructure together so that people can connect with other like-minded individuals because for this podcast has been the power of social media and it's what's helped me in my real estate career personally my income, but also in my investments. So 100% agree. I am actually super excited about this. It's all about community, man. Like it's all about community communication with when you're trying to accomplish what you, myself, and all the other people, all of our listeners are trying to accomplish. We need help. You're not going to have all the answers. You need other people to be there to help you through it. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create a national community that is involved and loves real estate. So if you, yes, you are listening and want to be part of that community, no matter where you are in our beautiful country, send 
an email to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we will respond and we will start to get everyone set up on prospective groups. And then sometime in the near future, maybe next year, you might see Dan and I in, in your little city or town or wherever you are. Anyways, enough is enough, Dan. What are we talking about today? We're talking about what we have mentioned a lot of times is the most important asset in real estate investing. Da, 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 drum what roll. is it? What is it, man? Come on, you're killing me. I what feel like it? everybody's probably read the title so they know that yeah, it true, is. Yeah. <laughs> Beyond the real estate asset itself, it is a good tenant. It's the best asset you can have in real estate investing, especially in Canada, because Canada is one of the most tenant-friendly countries in the world. And that is not a statement I take lightly or am I using with the intention of exacerbating the sort of class war that started between landlords and tenants really since COVID has been coming, since COVID has kind of changed that whole dynamic. But anyway, why don't you give us an overview on sort of what we're going to talk about here and then we'll get a little bit more granular and we're going to unpack this into multiple episodes, I think, but this is a, an overview of sort of the landlord and tenant relationship. Yeah, for sure. And just before we dive in, yeah, Dan's right. We definitely are going to unpack this. As we wrote this episode, along with most of the other episodes we've written, almost all of them, we realize that almost every subheading is probably its own episode. So this, like a lot of the other ones, is going to be a great bird's eye view. The landlord tenant stuff gets complicated because it gets different Every province you go to, every province and territory has some different rules, regulations, rent control, et cetera. So this is going to be a big high level view to give everyone an understanding of the generalities between landlords and tenants, how to find good ones, how to be a good landlord, all that good stuff. And then we will dive into details later on in other episodes. So without further ado, let's start with pride of ownership, something very important. So pride of ownership is a phrase that's often used to describe the pride owners of single family homes have for their properties and the attention to detail they put in to keep it in top-notch condition. Now, pride of ownership is associated with ownership. How do you get a tenant who doesn't own, take good care of that property, take care of it as if they did own it? Well, I always like to provide my tenants with not only an amazing space, but amazing things within that space, whether that be new appliances, a lawnmower, a snowblower. Give your tenants the means to have that pride of ownership. Another good thing, don't create animosity or resentment. And that goes for two things. That goes between you and the tenant relationship, the landlord and tenant relationship. That also needs to be looked at from the tenant to tenant relationship. So whether you're in a strip mall and you've got, you know, side-by-side -side commercial properties, you're in a duplex, a triplex, whatever it may be, you need to make sure that not only are you getting along with those tenants and you have a good relationship, but those tenants have a good relationship with one another. Yeah, I can't state enough the importance of harmony in multifamily residential buildings. Like harmony. Like I, yeah, that's what you Great call word. it, but you know, you don't want a loud tenant above a quieter tenant, especially in some of these older legal non-conforming units where you know the sound travels a lot or there's fire escape issues. You know, I've heard of nightmares where the tenants are so fed up that they'll go to the town and say, look, I feel like this unit needs a fire inspection or whatever it is. And so, you know, a lot of problems can be avoided by having good relationships between the tenant and the landlord, but also the tenant and the other tenant. 100%. I'm not yeah. saying illegal units, by the way, I'm saying legal non-conforming because I don't advise people. Give a quick, <laughs> yeah, sure. You want to give a quick definition of that before we move on? Yeah. So illegal units are units that were 
created illegally outside of the building code. So whereas legal nonconforming, typically they're that way because they were grandfathered. So the existence of the unit predates the fire code. So they often aren't up to existing code, but because they were occupied as a residential unit prior, they're not exempt, but they're grandfathered out of... Or grandmothered. Yeah, grand grandparented out of. And I think it is an important distinction because in a lot of cases, there is the expectation that during the turnover of a grandfathered unit, you should actually making an effort to bring these things up to modern code. One more thing I wanted to touch on was inherited tenants versus choosing and vetting your own tenants. So I'll give a quick definition of this. It's probably pretty obvious. Inherited tenants are when you go and buy a property and guess what? It comes with tenants. You then have to get to know those tenants. You have to come in and be that new landlord, be that new presence. You're going to want to do things like, you know, through your due diligence, you look at the rent rules, you'll ask the realtor or ideally the other landlord as to if there was any existing issues. But it's a very, very different relationship to inherit tenants than to be able to buy something and whether you're converting it or you buy it vacant and to choose your own tenants and vet your own tenants. So important difference there. It would also be worth noting that like typically the sale of an investment property isn't necessarily a pleasurable experience for tenants. I know that as somebody who sells Mm -hmm. primarily investment properties. And so they're going to have a bad taste in their mouth when they take possession. And in order to do that transition, you really have to think carefully about that. And that can often start during the acquisition process, right? A lot of times tenants are present for showings in multifamilies and, you know, you can get to know them. You can interview tenants during the acquisition process as well and make sure, again, that that relationship is going to be good and that you get a good feeling. I've seen perfectly clean rent rules, so payment histories completely fall apart and maybe they were fraudulent, but maybe also, you know, the tenants just had such a bad time. They're like, this is the final straw for me. I'm just going to take it all out on the new guy. I've been that new guy before. <laughs> I have. You know what I'm referring to. It's not fun. But diplomacy always works. And we'll get to that. We'll get to how to deal with those situations. I want to talk about one of the worst things you can call a, a landlord here. And that is a slumlord. That is a bad, bad word for guys like Dan and I, but is a word that unfortunately some landlords have earned. So, you know, Dan and I love to do our little history. And unfortunately, there's no Latin origin here, but the origin of Flay's slumlord is actually unknown, but an early mention can be found in a 1927 journal article called Theories, Facts, and Figures by William L. Hare in the academic journal Garden, Cities, and Town Planning, a journal for housing and town planning and civic improvement. That's quite the title right there. Hare credits the polemistical press of the time for referring to landlords of areas referred to as slums as slumlords. So essentially, if you own real estate in a not great part of town, good old William L. Hare back in 1927 was chirping you. Essentially, a slumlord is a slang for a landlord that generally is an absentee landlord, usually with more than one property who attempts to maximize profit by minimizing spending on property maintenance, often in deteriorating neighborhoods and to tenants that they can intimidate. Severe housing shortages allow slumlords to change higher rents and they can usually get away with it and even they can break rental law. So basically it's people that are not taking care of their properties. This is pretty obvious when you see, you know, you go in and look at properties and or you've experienced or you're hearing tenants and there's deferred maintenance, untimely or incomplete work orders from the tenants. 
using unlicensed or unskilled workers, trying to get cash deals or, you know, no leases or sketchy lease terms. And overall, this is where it hurts, just a general lack of respect for both the property and the tenant, which really grinds my gears. Yeah, I would say don't be that guy. You don't... Don't be that guy. Yeah, I mean... Look, nobody should be getting into this game with the objective of being a slumlord, right? I'd like to acknowledge that we're sort of seeing this class war forming between landlords and tenants, and it did start to become exceptionally apparent at the beginning of COVID. And before we talk about sort of the no-nos for both the tenants and the landlords, you know, if you back this up, you can almost go back to like this Marxist ideology of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, basically the labor, the proletariat and the capital, the bourgeoisie. I think when you talk about rental housing, people want to apply that logic, that landlord versus tenant logic. Like there's these two conflicting forces, whereas it really should be a collaborative relationship and it's a relationship business and it's a business primarily. And it's two individuals creating that business relationship. But landlords get a super bad rep on the internet these days. And I feel like, you know, to quote some Marxist ideology on this, the landlord is one of the last vestiges of feudalism still holding power now, even late capitalist society. And I mean, the reality is, look, the the term landlord does come from that original feudalist background, but it sounds like culturally, you know, to cite a Lifehacker article from July of this year, everyone hates landlords. Why do they get such a bad name? Come on. And... I think that, you know, beyond just the slumlord thing that you mentioned, Nick, I think that there's a couple of different trains of thought here. Number one is that landlords are often investors. And so they are considered to be driving up the cost of housing. They're considered to be speculating. They're considered to be taking units out of the housing stock. We hear a lot about people leaving houses vacant here in Canada. We hear a lot about people running ghost hotels. And those are houses that should be put into the housing stock, not put out as Airbnb units, as an example. And I think that all of those arguments do hold water, but you know, I think that we also need to consider that landlords and the ones that we think would be good investors should operate with the primary goal of creating housing, right? We're housing creators. That is our business. In that respect, you know, like you hear about this demonization of investors from the Bank of Canada that, you know, they were cause of the exuberance that, you know, was 20% of purchases during 2021, you know, was a lot of these people. But I think the big exuberance element there was first time landlords who were levering up their houses, right, getting a bunch of credit and going and buying with very little experience with the idea in their head that being a landlord is a passive income and it's not. It's a business. And I think that that is an important distinction that we constantly try to make here. You mentioned, you know, the tenant element is one of the reasons that you hear a lot of people shying away from it. I guess the other question is why do tenants have such a bad name right now? Yeah. I mean, that's a tough one. I have many tenants myself, some of which I have amazing relationships with that I, you know, I look forward to a call from them because I know it's a good call. I've got other tenants and have had other tenants in the past that have really showing no respect for me, my business or my property, which hurts, you know, especially when you're a small cap guy and you're doing a lot of the work yourself and you're very attached to your assets. So, you know, it's tough. There's two sides to every story. You know, I think some tenants, and again, Dan and I are not grouping anybody into any categories here. This is just a discussion, but some tenants can, you know, scare most real estate investors away. It's that old adage of, well, I don't want to be a real estate owner. I don't want to be a landlord. I got to go fix a toilet. You know, what happens when the toilet breaks that Saturday night at midnight? If that happens, your tenant's calling a plumber, not you. Or if they call you, you're calling a plumber. 
So I really think that for people that shy away from real estate investing or dip their toes in, you know, get a couple tenants, do it for a year and things go wrong. I want to talk to those people because, and I do talk to those people and I try to convince them to give it another shot because I do think that what we're doing when done right can be a very noble thing. So we've got some stats here. Dan, is there anything you want to say on that? Or do you want to jump into some of these stats? Maybe a couple of different things. Like, so... I think it's important to note that like, you know, there's abuse on both sides of the system here. The system, we're in a housing crisis in Canada and the landlord and tenant system in most provinces is broken. I mean, you can look at, you just Google landlord and tenant backlogs and in your province, you'll likely see some articles as to why that's happening, most notably in BC and in Ontario, obviously. But, you know, the reason for this is not just because tenants are refusing to pay rent or tenants are behind on rent. It's also because we do have a lot of those absentee landlords. We do have a lot of long distance investors who don't play an active role in the management of their property. And, and don't have systems in place for them to allow themselves not to play those active roles. Right. And so from my perspective, I think you can control for a lot of these things during the acquisition process of that second asset in your real estate relationship, which is the tenant. Acquiring the tenant properly and also acquiring or building that relationship properly. The reality is the whole thing, I would say controlling for a couple of small variables, the whole thing is basically relationship building. Statistically- You were supposed to save that till the end. Yeah. Statistically, (laughs) 33.1% of Canadian households rent right now. So we're going more and more towards this renter's economy. We're getting closer to what you see in Europe. And I mentioned this a lot, you know, we're heading towards a lower ownership economy, late stage capitalistic economy. And so we need to start nationally. I think it's obvious we need to fix our landlord and tenant system to make sure that that's better. But how can we as individuals play a better role in easing the housing crisis on a one-off basis for our tenants and for ourselves? As landlords, we can talk about this, how not to abuse the system, how to be a good landlord. So we'll start with, I think, maybe talking about evictions, the big E word. Are you saying be the change you want to see in the world? Something like that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a Nikhil original, by the way. No one's ever said that before. So let's just touch on evictions because I've personally never evicted someone. I've had tenants leave. I've gotten close. You know, we've done the N11s and we can get, you know, obviously I know the and forms for Ontario quite well. We'll dive into the specifics of each province and, and territory in, in another episode. But, you know, evictions aren't crazy common in Canada. Nowhere near like you hear them in the States. But here's a breakdown of the top five reasons for evictions in Canada. 37% of evictions say the sale of the property by the landlord. There is a way to strategize around this and probably is worth its own entire episode, obviously on the sales side, you know, like basically how to make that because I mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of the pain can happen between that transition period. There's a way to sell units better to make that less painful. We'll talk about it. I can't wait to hear that. Sounds like a good going to be another episode. Oh, I'll have to tune in. Okay. So 37% are evicted because the landlord is selling the property. 26% are evicted because the landlord wanted the unit for their own use. 13% are evicted because of a conflict with the landlord. 10% because of demolition, conversion, or major repairs. And only 8% are being evicted because they are so far behind on payments that the landlord-tenant board has agreed to evict them. Right. So I think... 
It's interesting because if you go through that list and you're giving the benefit of the doubt to the landlord that every conflict was the tenant's fault, which is highly unlikely, but let's just say that for the sake of this argument, still adding together all of those, that 37 plus 26 plus 10%, 73% of these reasons for evictions could be considered what I would call landlord-initiated evictions. So I think that you know the stability of housing is definitely a stress creator here. And probably one of the reasons you know the aforementioned Marxist ideology that landlords are, I can't really call them parasites or something like that, right? Like in, in some of these, yeah, I know, so funny. I know, like it was just like, you can maybe choose a different terminology here that doesn't necessarily foster this relationship that we're trying to talk about. But I think, you know, a very small portion are what I would call tenant initiated, you know, and so you're getting, especially in Canada here, a lot of landlords threatening the stability of housing. And that to me, it's a function or a symptom of the speculative nature of Canadian real estate, that a lot more people are buying real estate to sell it than to hold it as an investment. I think that's going to change right now because of the counter-cyclical event that we're seeing in real estate prices coming down, but I can't guarantee that that's going to happen. So I think that we need to obviously think about, you know, what other ways can we have better assets as landlords and help to obviously increase the perspective that landlords have in the Canadian market and not play into this ideology that there's this landlord versus tenant thing. And I think the big one is, again, acquisition of the right tenant. I think it really goes back to the, you know, that word you dropped earlier that I really like, harmony, right? It's about finding that harmonious relationship. So let's talk about how to attract the best tenants for your rentals. So to quote some relationship advice, to get the best, you got to be the best. Yeah. And don't you mean, I think there's, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. Is that what, is that what oh, you meant to say? That's it right there. Yeah. So I want to point this out because I talk to a ton of landlords, both Dan and I are very investor focused, mortgage agent, real estate agent, investors ourselves. You know, I can comfortably say I maybe know one landlord that's chilling on a beach right now, you know, a millionaire chilling on a beach. That is not the picture that has been painted by the public of what landlords are is way over dramatic and way over romanticized. And to be a great landlord, you know, most of the landlords I know are hardworking, very hardworking. They're managing their own stuff. They're just normal people trying to build a business, which I commend and respect. Now, in any business, there's a few core things that you should be abiding by. And those are very prevalent in what we're about to talk about, how to attract the best tenants. Communication is absolutely key. You want to be able to create value for those tenants. You also want to be organized and responsive. Nothing's more frustrating than sending someone an email or sending someone a phone call or text message or whatever your preferred method of communication is with your tenants and just not getting anything back or getting something back weeks later after you've been dealing with that issue. That's when people will go around you or over you to the town, the city, whatever it may be. Good contracts make good friends. I love that, right? If you can have your contract represent the relationship you're going to have, those words on paper quickly start to mirror what happens in real life. The best real estate investments are made in the acquisition phase, including tenants. Be thorough at the beginning so you don't have to at the end. I love this. It's all about front loading your work. If you spend, man, I'm telling you, there's so many newbie real estate investors that we work with, Dan, and you know they just want to get that tenant in there as fast as possible because why wouldn't you? 
You know, you're any day that that tenant's not in there, you're losing rent, right? If if you're trying to get them in on October 1st and by October 5th, you're still looking for tenants. Well, now you're starting October 15th or November 1st. But I'm telling you right now, it is worth the wait to find a good tenant and the right tenant for that property. So you got to be self-aware of all these things that we just mentioned. Yeah, for sure. And I think being empathetic that there's a housing crisis, but also in regards to what you just mentioned about, you know, even like delaying by one month in order to get the right tenant, because choosing the wrong tenant can cost you significantly more in months of rent, right? And it's not just the stress that can be created. Like in a lot of cases, a tenant can just arbitrarily choose not to pay you rent. And because of the backlogs at the landlord and tenant boards, and because of the way that our court system is structured, and because we're not as litigious as the United States. And because we have winter for five months of the year. Right. It often takes, I mean, I've had an eviction that took 16 months and and I didn't get paid for that entire period. And the reality is I'll never see that money. And were and you slightly stressed during that period as well? I wasn't in that case because it was a multiplex. The other tenants in the property were stressed. This is one of the problems here. This was the only inherited tenant remaining in the building and they, it was all natural turnovers, but it was a really rough living situation and it was basically becoming a boarding house for a lot of illegal activities. I'm just trying to be as diplomatic as humanly possible here. The police were there regularly. The bylaw was there regularly. The fire department was there regularly for fire inspections for too many people. And the landlord and tenant board was unable to get the tenants out of out of the property in spite of you know it being numerous more problems outside of just us as landlords. The police were telling us we had to get these people out of the property. The fire department was telling us we had to get these people out of the property. <laughs> and I was like, I can't do I'm anything. Yeah, yeah, I can't. And I can't reduce the amount of people. Like I'm doing everything that I possibly can. Here's the paperwork I'll show you. And so I wasn't involved in that selection. But if you make the wrong choice, it can cost you much more than the one month's rent that you might lose on the way in. And the same thing goes for pricing a unit. So if you break a relationship with a tenant and they want to withhold rent to hang you out to dry, they can and they will. And there's really no authority or legislature in Canada that is going to come and save you. And so it's really making the right business decision, right, Nick? 100%, man. Treat it like a business relationship. For anyone listening out there, it's simple. Respect and customer service are the main things. And the reality here is if a tenant stops paying you, it's going to take you a long time to evict them. And regardless of which province you're in, you know, Quebec's website states that tenants normally have a right to stay in their apartment as long as they meet their obligations. This is known as the right to remain. And this is pretty standardized across Canada. If your tenant owes you money even after the eviction, I mean, you've been in, have you been in this position, Nick? What are your recourse here? I personally have not been in this position. I was recently in a position where I tried to get some money from a tenant that had completely destroyed a unit of mine after nine months. You know, I know we're going to go into the small claims court thing and it's the unfortunate thing is just, it's not worth it, right? If the tenant had probably done about $2,000, $2,500 worth of damage and it just wasn't worth it for me to go after. It's such a stressful process. I'm of the mindset, just move on and do better next time. Yeah. You know, I think that's a general sentiment with a lot of landlords that it's not worth it. And in a lot of cases, the tenants and the board will count on that. Like, you know, I mean, there's obviously a natural correlation here. If a landlord isn't around enough to take proper care of their unit, they're probably also not around enough to fight for all of the money or to show up at court. It's almost 50-50 of who does show up at court. Usually it's the landlord and tenant boards. 
one party, not usually, sorry, but in a lot of cases when a deal is pretty clear cut, one of the parties doesn't show up. So I don't want to blame all of the backlogs on the landlord and tenant boards on the tenants because I think that there are probably just as many bad landlords out there as there are bad tenants. And it's one of my goal to eliminate that because I think that you could really fix a lot of problems in the world by doing things the right way. Pricing your units in an appropriate way is a business decision. Just like pricing your products is a business decision as any other company would in the same way, Nick, that you know you mentioned not wanting to go to court is a business decision. Trying to avoid future expenses is a business decision. And so, you know, like any other product would price the product that they sell, you know, that is a business decision. Absolutely. I mean, people get scared to even go raise the rent, but it creates loyalty and it actually creates a stronger business relationship for you as a landlord and your joint venture partners or your future joint venture partners. But if you're a fair, communicative landlord and you're not asking for anything unreasonable. You're going in and you can explain to your tenants or if you own a ton of units and you just, whatever way you do it, if you can communicate to them that, look, rents are going up because rates are going up, et cetera, et cetera, inflation, whatever it may be, it's not unreasonable to expect them to accept it and to be fair. If you are fair to them, they will most likely be fair to you. You know, if a tenant has a good deal on a unit, they're not as likely to leave because it's hard for them to go and find a better deal elsewhere. They're making a business decision too, right? They want to get the best product that they can for the best price that they can. And if you price it properly, they have a financial incentive to be prompt in their payments, to not risk eviction, to maintain that relationship just as much as you do. So pricing, just like any other business, is one of the most important marketing tools that you can have in running that business. Yeah, I love that. And that's actually a good segue into the next little subheading we've got here, which is rent control. Dan, tell us a little bit about rent control. Yeah, so there are several kinds of rent control policies available across Canada. And there are, you know, kind of four important components to what those are. And I would just Google what these are in your individual province. But I'm going to try and summarize them and, and round up to sort of like the highest common denominator so that you know what's expected of you as a landlord. So there's something called frequency limits. So that is how often rent can be increased by a landlord. Typically, it's annually. And typically, in a lot of cases, it's obviously not after a certain period of time. There are notice limits. So how much notice you have to provide if you're increasing the rent. And typically, it would be three months or 90 days. Increase limits, which is the amount by which rent can be increased. So, and typically the guideline amount in more, let's call it tenant friendly places, but also economically normalized places are that the guideline is around inflation with some exceptions and to the better or worse, you know, there was rent freezes during COVID and there are some areas where they allow above guideline increases. And then vacancy decontrol. So this is something that we're just starting to hear about as a response to the housing crisis in Canada, especially a landlord's ability to re-rent a unit at market rate once it has been vacated. And then there are obviously different iterations of this, but that one's ha we haven't seen massively instituted yet at scale in Canada. And for anyone listening, you know, these do change interprovincially and in the territories as well. So this is again a high level episode going over all the generalities. We will do more specific stuff for each province, but I would urge you to, you know, if you're a landlord dealing with something right now, go and figure this stuff out. It's all accessible online. We pulled a couple things here. It's funny because it seems like the country is divided into landlord-friendly places and 
landlord not so friendly places. So one of the lists we found here was landlord friendly provinces based on rent control, and that is Alberta, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, Quebec, and Saskatchewan. And then Ontario, BC, PEI, and Manitoba all have restrictions on how much a landlord can increase rents. And I guess, you know, the reason that these rules are in place is obviously to eliminate disputes or conflicts between landlords and tenants. But when those disputes arise, Nick, what happens? Oh, landlord tenant boards get involved. So on the Newfoundland landlord and tenant website, they actually have a thing called guide to dispute resolution. That's an interesting one. Basically, the landlord and tenant boards want you to DIY, you know, do it yourself because they're so bogged down. So in many cases, you get rewarded for going to mediation first. And this is where, you know, Dan and I have solved numerous issues. Diplomacy always wins here, folks. Just be diplomatic about it. Everyone, like, you know, whether you're on the landlord side or the tenant side, everyone's a human. So just make sure you're treating people that way, okay? Actually, sorry, just to interject there, I think one of the things that's important when a conflict does arise or when a dispute arises is if you weren't before, I mean, I would always typically advise to communicate in writing as much as possible. It is difficult in some cases because I do think that a verbal conversation needs to take place or a face-to-face conversation needs to take place to diffuse situations sometimes and to humanize the issue. You know, for landlords as well, like I think in a lot of cases, there's a dehumanization. I don't mean that in like a, you know, a conflicting term, but like I think that it's hard when there's a line between you and it's a, you know, maybe a corporation name. People don't humanize their landlords or people don't humanize their tenants if they just see them as, you know, a paycheck or a passive income stream. And, and so I think that again, the relationship element is seeing face-to-face and a lot of conflicts can be resolved that way. But when conflicts are arising and, you know, having a good paper trail, like the amount of every single time I'm in the board, it is, hey, can I see the exchange, right? And it was like, you know, Facebook messages in some cases because it was actually in the case that I was talking to you about, the tenant was messaging us stuff on Facebook and that was just the only method that she would ever communicate with us. And, and we had to, it, that, it was out of necessity to do that. And even on that note, to go full circle back to the episode that you referenced at the beginning of this episode, episode 20, the six people you need to buy your first investment property. One of them is a lawyer. And I told you guys a little bit about some of my experiences with my lawyer when I was going through some deep, dark, extraordinarily stressful tenant drama, let's just say is a nice way to put it. And Dan is is completely right. You need everything in writing. So this is where, unfortunately, you know, you never want to have to bring a lawyer or a paralegal in, but this is where those types of people come into play and they can be very, very detrimental in helping you solve that issue. Yeah. And so I think, you know, like having things in writing obviously creates the clarity that's necessary when, you know, when you're asked to present these things, especially because there's dates, like having everything dated. So text messages have dates, right? Facebook messages in my case had dates, emails have dates, because in a lot of cases, when was the notice delivered with the backlogs that we're seeing in the landlord and tenant board in a lot of cases, they're saying, okay, well, was the notice delivered on the right time. Because like I've seen people get their cases thrown out after waiting six to eight months at the landlord and tenant board because they delivered the notice one day too early as an example. And so you want to make sure. And so one of the things that I'll often advise is if something was done verbally, what I'll often do is send a message to the counterparty afterwards. And I do this in real estate negotiations as well in real estate transactions. Hey, so-and-so, 
we just had this conversation. Here's a couple of summary points. I even type them. Like I'm always taking notes when I'm on calls. Hey, this is a summary of our call. I just wanted to, you know, to make sure that we're on the same page here. Send it out as an email. Then at least it's there and it's in writing and they have the chance, you know, did I miss anything you can say at the end so that if they don't respond saying no, or please let me know if I'm incorrect on anything here. And if they don't let you know that anything's incorrect, then it's not, obviously not a firm agreement, but you've given them the chance to correct you if you're making stuff up. That's a nice little trick that I'll use in a lot of cases to turn verbal conversations into writing. I love And I know we had mentioned, you know, the Newfoundland Landlord Tenant Board recommends DIY. I don't. I recommend getting a lawyer or a paralegal involved if and when you start to get to the point where you, you'll you know where you're entering a, a red flag situation. That's a who, not how situation. Go find the right person to help you deal with that. It'll be way less stressful and you will resolve that situation much better off for everybody involved in the end. Yeah, I would say actually even just expediting the speed at which you get to like, and we're happy to refer you to a paralegal if you want to just send me a DM, like the people that we work with regularly, 250 bucks for a consult easily has saved me thousands and thousands of dollars because, you know, and number one, they hair they, loss as well. <laughs> <laughs> and right away they go, okay, we have to get to mediation here. That's what the board's going to expect. And so they'll get to mediation. Then we're actually in a conversation. And that also expedites how quickly you can get a hearing. And so even if it's one month earlier, the 250 bucks I just spent just got me a month's rent back as an example. That I would say is a good investment. So do you want to, I guess we should wrap this one up here. I think the reality is tenants are a customer, they're a client. I guess, an asset as well. 100%. They can make or break a deal. They can make or break your heart. They can make or break your head and they can make or break your wallet. I think that in that respect, it ought to be treated with care. You have to, you know, you have to tread carefully and you have to treat it like a business decision. You got to put your thinking cap on. You can't treat it with emotion. You can't get wrapped up, stressed out, you know, overreact or underreact. You really have to think about this input, output, cost, benefit, analyze it like you would any other business decision at your job, you know, in your investment portfolio and, you know, from the relationship perspective as well, right, Nick? And that's it. Honestly, manage that relationship, everybody. That's the most simple thing I can say is just, you know, it's the golden rule, right? Treat others the way you want to be treated. Just because you're the landlord doesn't mean that you are better than that tenant. That tenant might own a bunch of properties as well. Both Dan and I rent our primaries. So don't get it twisted. Manage that relationship. Be diplomatic and be communicative. Absolutely. Always remember that the best investments are made in the acquisition phase. We talk about this all the time in real estate. The best deals are made on the way in. And that includes the acquisition of a tenant. That includes starting your business relationship with a tenant. So think through that one carefully. Front load as much work as you can. Be analytical on the way in. Build a good relationship on the way in so that you don't have to do a lot of the work later on and you're not triaging and you're not stressed out later. It's preventative maintenance. Very, very simple stuff. So I think that covers pretty much everything from a broad, you know, high level perspective of what it looks like, the landlord and tenant relationship. You know, we got a little crazy with the class war stuff that's going on, but I think it does need to be acknowledged because there is, you know, I mean, economically right now, I think we're in this place where we're seeing this K-shaped recovery. And assets are the big dividing factor between the upper and lower classes, which, you know, the middle of that is being erased by inflation. And I don't want to see people who are trying to, you know, create a financial future for themselves and for their families 
fall into a trap where they're creating bad situations for somebody else's life or creating bad situations for their own life or creating conflict as a result of just just trying to do what they think is right for them. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one. And we're going to dive in a lot more, obviously, on this stuff. This is pretty qualitative for us. It's not very nuts and bolts. So I feel like we kind of went out, we went out on a limb a bit on this one. We had a section in here of Dan and I's anecdotes and some personal stories and some good stories and some horror stories. We didn't get to that. So we'll do a whole episode on that. But Listen, everyone, thanks so much for listening. This was a really fun episode for us. We hope you got value out of it. Tune in every Tuesday and Friday for more great real estate content. If you want to be part of our growing national community of investors, realtors, mortgage agents, and all that good stuff, send us an email. Email is in the show notes. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.